What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to Nightmare Success In and Out Podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with and others who served time at other prisons. We're going to be talking about life before prison, life in prison, and life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Folks, today we have a real treat because I always love the fact when we have alums, nightmare success alums that were on the program that give me somebody to talk to that they are really high on. So Brandon Reed, who was on a few podcasts ago, and he was at the time, um, there was a lot of talk in the town of St. Louis about his story. He was on the uh, in the Post-Dispatch and some other uh, places talking about he was being turned down for places to live. So anyway, we, we were talking back and forth, and he said, you've got to talk to Robert Riley II. He said, I'll give you his – here's his contact. I was all excited. So I started reading up on Robert. And, you know, everybody who listens to this program knows I love it when somebody can take their experience that they've had and then affect positive change because of that. And, you know, Robert got out of prison in 2008. Uh, he went through a 12-step recovery, and he just kept stepping. I mean, he, he first went in, and he had uh, – he, he went in, and he started the – it was – people he noticed were dying of the opioids. And there were friends and people just all around. And so he realized that the Narcan needed to be given. And so he started doing it. He just actually started doing it. And, and it wasn't totally well received by the people who didn't really understand this. But then he went further and wrote into the laws to break down the barriers so this could save people's lives. He then stepped in and, and, and said, okay, let's, we've, got, we've got people that are staying alive now. Let's, let's do some things with housing and recovery supportive housing where he had five houses, three for guys and, and three for women or two for women. And, and then he got into going in a third thing where we're hitting addiction head on, head on into the recovery, but not only the 30 day recovery, but actually doing outpatient recovery and following up. And then there was a fourth part of this that I think is really cool. He's got a, uh, a truck, coffee truck, and the cookie hustle. And this is helping people who are in recovery and uh, help, teaching them how to bake uh, baristas uh, so that they can move on and, and, and move to like a Starbucks or whatever. But it's employment. I am just, I, I'm very excited. And, and Robert and I have been talking here a little bit before we got on, but Robert, welcome in, man. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I just, I, I love your story because you, you, you were humbled by your experience, but you didn't lose the drive. You know, you, uh, like we were talking, you could, you can, when, when you go through going into being humbled and having to go to prison and, and having to come out and basically start your life over and figure out how you're going to do that, uh, that can scare a lot of people into paralysis. And, and you did just the opposite of that. So I, I just, you know, it, it's fantastic. And, and you're affecting real change. I mean, what you, everything that you've done is doing really good things for things that really need to be done, which I think is cool. Very cool. So I'm blessed. You I, are. I, I am. I'm yes. Blessed. And and we we're just talking. You've got three three uh, grown uh, boys. Uh, so you know you've 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 made it all the way through and a good dad and all this stuff. Let's go back a little bit. So. You're in St. Louis, but you kind of happened here. You grew up in... I grew up in Southern California, Orange County. Yeah. And um, What was life like for you back in the day? You know, my, my, uh, my dad went to prison when I was two and a half, um, and he was a heroin user. And my mom is the polar opposite of that. Um, you know, she struggled with her own mental health issues over, you know, in, in her 20s um, through relationships and stuff. But she was, you know, she was in real estate. And okay. she was a mortgage banker. And, um, but, you know, back then in the 70s, um, she wasn't. She was a secretary. You know, she was a waitress. She mm -hmm. was a secretary at a real estate office. And uh, we were poor. You know, she had two, two small kids, myself and my younger sister. And um, 
you know, we just, we moved a lot. I always tell people this. We, like, we moved a lot around Orange County. And, and part of it was the, the guy that owned the real estate office would allow my mom and us, <clears throat> excuse me, to move into the houses that were for sale. And the problem with that, which was cool to help us sure. out. Sure. But the problem is they would sell. Yeah, and then you had to move again. And then we had to move. Did that mean you had to change schools and all that? Four times in one school system. Yeah, man, I think that'd be so tough. Yeah, it, it was. It was, you know, but you're a kid and you adapt. You do. Pretty resilient. And, and my my thing was, you know, if we lived by the beach, I was surfing. Sure. I lived, you know, over here I was skateboarding or dirt biking. and and But my thing was always, and I always tell this story, you know, when I would get to a new school because it became so common of a thing. Yeah. Up, that I would, if I did something stupid. Mm-hmm. I would make the kids laugh, and then they would like me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted. That was I, how you could. That's, that's how I fit in. Yeah. And so part of the problem with that is that, you know, you get in trouble. Yeah. Because I was, you know, you have to escalate it. You know, it starts off, you're going to you're gonna jump your bike. Do something funny. Yeah, yeah, you know, and then you're spray painting the side of the school and getting in trouble. But then, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but consequences, you do that enough, you condition yourself. The consequences were just part of the process to get the kids to like you. So yeah. they're becoming less and less, you know, having an effect on my change in my behaviors. They're mm. just part of the process, mm. you know, and that's, and that's how it grew up. And, and did, did it, was it, um, what was your thoughts of, at two and a half years old, your dad going to prison, was there any connection with him at all? I mean, what, did, did, or he, was he just completely absent from your life? No, so he, yeah, so he was gone. I mean, my grandparents, the Rileys, they would take me to visit him up in Soledad State Prison when he was in, in California Department of Cray. He ended up in the feds mm-hmm. as well. And um, What was that like as a kid? You know, I, I remember going, I remember it just being kind of weird. And, yeah. You know, this is the 70s, and so there wasn't, it wasn't as prevalent as it is yeah. now with, now it's kind of a badge of honor for a lot of people mm-hmm. or a way, you know, just generationally. Yeah. Back then, you know, my mom and I talked about this. I mean, I, at one point in my teens, I said, no, my dad was killed in Vietnam. Yeah. It was easier for me to say that than for me to say he was in the penitentiary. But mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was scary, and I didn't know this guy, and he came out, and he had hair down to his butt yeah. and tattoos and yeah. You know, but yeah, it was just different, you know, and it was, but it was also all I knew. Was not well, I guess that's true. You wouldn't have known anything. And that's how you always saw him. Yeah. That's how I always saw him. And, and that's a, I'm going to do a Ted talk about my dad here soon. I, Are you? I, I really am. I have a friend helping me write it. And um, because it's an interesting thing that how I viewed him. My dad is in active addiction right now at 75 years old, homeless somewhere wow. out towards Vegas. And I've, you know, he's been out, he got out a year before me. Okay. And, um, and I've, because I'm in recovery, mm-hmm. you know, um, one of the last times I saw him, I went down to Arkansas where he made his way and he was homeless and I saw him passing a window at a Burger King. Wow. You know, and took him to buy him shoes and clothes. And then I took him to a meeting, a 12 step meeting. And so I had this. What was that like? I had this connection of I knew that he was suffering in the ways that I had suffered. But it, did you feel uh, between the two of you a connection at that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Because I understood, you know, he didn't know any other way either. He, right. he had grown up in the penitentiary. Yeah. You know, and um, so, yeah. That's deep. Yeah. <laughs> That's deep stuff. So. Uh, moving around like that is, is, uh, you know, your dad's in prison, your mom's working as hard as she can work. Um, your high school years, were they what you would call normal or did, were things kind of out of whack? No, I, you know, I, I, uh, at 14, I, I tried alcohol for the first time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, seriously tried it other than my cousin or somebody here taste this at nine you know mm-hmm. and um and i remember i drank whiskey and my story is within a week's time from there i'd smoked some weed i'd done some cocaine and then i was off i was going with some older kids to compton california to go buy some pcp so it really escalated yeah i mean it was just my my thing is you know I'm a poly substance user, which means that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll drink until everybody's like, you're an alcoholic, stop drinking. Okay. I'll stop drinking. Uh-huh. I'll just smoke weed. Yeah. And then I'll smoke weed until like, 
you're sleeping on our couch and eating all of our food. You, know, you got to stop smoking. <laughs> He's that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but I always, that was my, it was always something yeah. to escape yeah. or to deal with life. Yeah. And, and so it started in my teens because at that point, 14, my mom had really had her first um, opportunity. So she, she started, she had her business now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so things started going like this for her. Meanwhile, I was left to live with my grandfather and my uncle in Garden And Road. you were just doing your own thing. You know, and she's moving up to Anaheim Hills, you know. So did you start getting in trouble? Started getting arrested at 14, 15, you know. What, were you th- what did you think when that started happening, Robert? Was that like, oh, no, or, eh? You know, it's funny, back to my dad, everybody always said, your dad was such a smart guy, like drugs really messed him up. You uh-huh. know, don't be like your dad. Everybody's yeah. saying that, right? Yeah. And I was exactly doing <laughs> what he w- had been doing. <laughs> like I was I was skateboarding down the state, same streets he had skateboarded down, you know what I mean? And and doing the, and so I started getting in trouble. But, you know, back then they'd pick you up and um, they'd take you to the jail. They'd call your mom, mm-hmm. my mom single mom she'd show up crying mm-hmm. screaming at me don't you're gonna end up like your dad please don't begging me things like that and did so, you think that no man i was you didn't think that you were gonna end up like your dad i was just trying to I, I, the reason i asked this because you and i were talking about robert both our dads went to prison and then you've got you know they say well if your dad goes to prison i don't know how many what the percentage chances are that then you go to prison, but they're really high. And I never even thought of it like that. Cause you know, my dad went to prison, you know, he didn't, he, he got in trouble with a bank deal and, and that he came out and he kind of re, remade himself. But I know when I was there, I was, I was 15 years old and we drove in there and, and, you know, he came out to visit us in the visiting room. And, and I know that my overall thought the whole time was that this would never happen to me. And I, you know, when we would drive away, it's never going to happen to me. And the fact that my whole life went full circle and I ended up in prison. And then I went back because his sentence was longer mine to visit him at the prison. I had visited him at when I was 15 years old, after I'd been in prison, that was a mind buzz. But yeah, it's, it's weird to fall into these statistics because you don't feel like you're the statistic. And then you look at it and think, wow, I am actually. My dad went to prison and I went to prison and we both went to prison. It was just, you know, and I said I'd never go to prison. Yeah. If you go to BOP.gov, and I'm not proud of this, but it's Robert David Riley and then Robert David Riley II. My name is directly. Right underneath him. Directly below his. Yeah. And no, I, you know, you remind me though, now I'm thinking like, I remember thinking that'll never happen to me. Yeah. I'm smarter than that. I'm just smarter than I was. Never happened. And this is what all my friends are doing, too. Yeah. You know, they're all running around drinking. And yeah. Being Did you feel like, though, at that time that you were had the the ability to be addicted, or did you just think you were having fun? Yeah, I didn't. I Addiction wasn't a word in my... A, it was in the lower middle class, lower, you know, poverty. Mm-hmm. It was in the area that I was living so it, it was a thing that's just what it was yeah you know it wasn't called an addiction it was you know it was just life it was life yeah it was life and um so no i never had that thought of addiction so what so you get through your teenage years marry my childhood sweetheart. that's what i was going to ask you yeah. so then what happened the, the so i married my childhood sweetheart somebody yeah. that she had she was Fourteen, I was fifteen. Yeah. We get married later on, and um, and uh, we moved. Actually, we were married a year, and I had an opportunity to move to Colorado with my aunt and uncle's company. He was relocating it from Southern California, and so we moved out there. And I pretty much took drugs. And my son would you been in like your early twenties? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was uh, twenty. Yeah, I got married when I was twenty. Okay. So my son was born when I was twenty-one, and so and he was almost a year old when we moved to Colorado. And I'd taken the drugs out of it for the most part. I'd smoke weed here and there or something like that. But alcohol, again, you yeah. got to have something yeah. to deal with life. Yeah. And so we moved to Colorado, and 
you know, that's really, I made it about two and a half years and my alcoholism, like serious alcoholism mm-hmm. at this point where I'm choosing alcohol over, over everything else. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Over everything else. And she said, that's it. And she kicks me out and, and it was a green light for me. Yeah. It was a green light for me to live how, you know, and I had taken on all looking back now, I'm 52 years old. I can look back and just say, gosh, I was so immature. Yeah. And so many. Yeah, you saw it as a green and, light to do exactly what yeah. I want to do now. <laughs> yeah, like nothing yeah. holding me back now, you yeah. know. And, and, and by the way, I'm going to be this great dad yeah. every other weekend. Yeah. That's just not what happened. No. That is just not what happened. What I did was I got my weekend to drink. And then when it was my weekend, I wouldn't drink. I would drink. Mm-hmm. And then it just became I didn't see my kids. And that just became your world. And that was it. And, and, Fast forward to where I'm now. Now I'm I've been going in and out of incarceration in Colorado, mostly for bar fights and that's what I was going to ask. Like, is that how it happened? Just kind of yeah. just get life out of control type things. Yeah, and state charges. My mom comes up from Texas because she had relocated out there, and, mm-hmm. and where all of her family's from originally. And she comes up, and I was sit I was sitting in jail, and she came and visited me, and she said, "Look." You're like six months left on probation. The judge says he'll let you out now, but you have to leave the state. <laughs> leave the state. For like you. stay we, out we, of we Colorado. We want you months. out of here. Literally, literally. <laughs> this is what she's telling me. That's the what they have like on the movies. We'll drive you to the county line. <laughs> I mean, it was it was no joke. And so I I get out, and and part of it was you're going to come down here and you're going to get sober, not sobriety. You're just not going to you know you're yeah. going to stop drinking, you know. And so we get down to Texas, and I love telling this because it's truth. We get down there, and one of the first people, my mom, that I'm meeting all this Texas cousins and stuff. One of the first people I meet, a cousin almost my age. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you two guesses what his first name is. Legal get first name. Robert? Budweiser. <laughs> my, I, have a, I have a cousin who I, love, Budweiser. who I love. His first legal name is Budweiser. Okay. His sister's name is Brandy, by the way. That's, That's not that is, and Brandy. That I is, love it. So now you can't make that so up. You can't make it up. <laughs> so, so we get to Texas, and the first, you know, you're supposed to straighten up your life. Yeah. You're going to be a dad. You're going to get yeah. back together. Here's your cousin Budweiser. Unbelievable. True story. <laughs> Budweiser and Brandy. So what's when does because you had these state charges and and you're kind of living through that when does when does it get real bad when does your nightmare get to the point where you're looking at something that's different than what you have before so yeah i mean i'll fast forward through a bunch i'm i'm in texas department of corrections Mm -hmm. um with a um, prison sentence and um i'm about a year into it and i get called up to the rno well i get told to roll up my stuff come up Okay. I, I honestly, I thought I was making parole. Yeah, you thought and, you were getting out. And and I was going to have to either go clear up a warrant, a little ticket somewhere. You know how it yeah. is. And uh, I get up there, and I'm sitting up there in the cage. This is in Brownwood, Texas, TDCJ. And I'm sitting there, and I, boss man, where am I going? And he goes, the U.S. Marshals are here for you. Oh, man. <laughs> That's never a good start. <laughs> that is not the... Uh, that's not what you thought you were walking into. No. And and uh, and I knew that the feds were just handing out time like it was candy, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and I, I literally I felt I fell back onto the seat and and um, so then I get transferred over. I'm in Fort Worth. I'm in the Fort Worth uh, federal courthouse and um, and they hand me my indictment papers. And uh, and so you look, you see this piece of paper, and what it says on the front of it is the United States of America versus versus Robert Riley. Right. It's very intimidating. <laughs> and I'm like, man, they got aircraft carriers. That's it's right. Like, it's, I don't, even, it, I don't even have a skateboard right now. <laughs> Robert, know? I'm not even sure if there's anything in yeah. this world that's more intimidating than that. It, it, it seriously is, and and so. You know, I I get transferred over. I'm I'm awaiting, and everybody's. Uh, lawyers, their public defenders are coming to visit them, and I never get a, sh- I, my never shows up. In fact, I go to court once, and they never show up, and the judge asks what's going on. Oh my gosh! And so, 
So I write this letter to this, and it's her first case. You know the deal. They, they, a lot of them, they have to do so many pro bonos, and right. they, they want to get that plaque on their wall in their office. And so, and she had an MBA. And so I wrote her this letter, and I literally told her, I need you to shit or get off the pot. <laughs> in the letter. That's what I told her. Okay. Like, either do something or let, right. let me, this is my life. Yes. And so she goes, and she gets my supersedes my indictment and um, really became a bulldog. And, and so I end up, I, you know, the judge saw where there was double jeopardy happening with my state charges that I had already been picked up on and this new federal case. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so she runs back some of my time. I end up getting 30 months. I have to go do now in the feds, Okay, but my state time is still running too. So okay. I was, and so I end up in four city medium um, down in Forest city, Arkansas and uh but a medium i was at it because of all my conviction you know right the state all the way all to the right the stuff all the way down fo- all the stuff that followed Your you PSI, yes yeah. yes and that's a point system yep. so i i've completely blocked that out okay got so, it so so i end up over at the medium and uh what yeah. was your uh, take on walking into a federal prison? Well, medium? I had already been in Texas Department of Corrections yeah. where you can't, you know, you can't. I mean, I, it's only been like five or six years since they put phones in that mm-hmm. system. You yeah. Know, you used to have to go get what they called a chaplain's call, one every 90 days, and you're waiting in a line behind 300 guys that got out there before you. Wow. So you weren't really, you had to write your family or, or them come visit, mm-hmm. you know. And so now I'm in a federal and they for real, from Texas, it was a huge step up. Mm-hmm. It's just you got to do more time there. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, they have no parole system. So, you know, I mean, I had been, again, I had been in jails and incarcerated and prison. You know, I, I've been doing it so long off and on that. You knew that how to do time. I knew how to how to integrate into that society. And, and it. you know, isn't that strange, though? Because I was having this conversation with somebody, Robert, and, it, and it's. It is odd that one thing you don't fear, you never want to go back. No. You, you, do, you never want to go back. But the fear of not, of, of knowing that you can do it, you know that you can do it now. That That is a, 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 a strange dichotomy of your thought process because when I first went to prison, I was wondering what in the world is going to happen to me on the other side. Now I know. I just don't want to go back. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, you know, like you I, knew how to do like time. I, like I said to you earlier, I, I know how to do yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I didn't know how to do the free world right. life out here, sober, not yeah. having the escape tools. Yeah. Right. Like that's what scared me. But I'm interested though, when you go into, because it was what, 30 months? You yeah. Were, was it, did you feel immediately like that you were going to withdraw or that you felt like you were going to have withdrawals or, or, how did that? How did your body feel when you went into that? Because oh, you were already in the Texas. Oh yeah, system. I was. I had already been in TDC. So you were already through that. Yeah, I, I had already been. I had already done you were that. Kind I, of. I'd done sober. Yeah, I was sober. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. I, you know, we still drank, and at that sure. point, I hadn't decided to be sober. Sober. Yeah. No, you can get what you want in prison. Yeah. It's just and deciding if you don't do it. Right. 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 So you know, I. That part was fine, and when I again when I moved over into the feds, it was just it was better care, it was yeah. better a lot better everything than, yeah. than Texas Department of Corrections. You know the violence, the um, the violence, the waking up on Christmas morning in a cell mm-hmm. is still there. Mm-hmm. That that just resonates with me. Yeah, not having carpet to go in the day room and lay down and watch a football game. Yeah. Like carpet was one of the things I missed. I know it sounds crazy, but it was like just being able to well, lay down your I living mean, room, right? They, well, I mean, you don't have soft things in prison. You know, everything's a hard surface. Yep. You know, you got a plastic chair. The only thing that you have really that's any cushion at all is that little mattress they give you to sleep on. But other than that, everything's a hard surface. That's why I went to work as a grade one clerk in the laundry because I that was where my hustle exactly. was. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I could make my own pillows. Exactly. Pillows <laughs> you know? are huge. Yeah. <laughs> we used to watch the the uh, pillow guy, my pillow on, on TV, and just think, man, that'd be so good. And now it got out, and that pillow's not that great. No. <laughs> <laughs> You should see my bed today. Yeah. I have 15 pillows exactly. on my bed. It's the little things in life, right, things, Robert? Yeah. <laughs> it really is. So, no, so I'm, you know, and I always tell people, it, it, here's what happened. There's three things that happened in late um, uh, August of 2006. 
I, I had a little cousin who I'm for, was 14 years, I'm 14 years older than he was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was the kid that kind of got passed around by all the aunts because his mom was in addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she and I are more like brother and sister than her being my aunt. Sure. It's only two years different. Yeah. So my mom's little sister. So he idolized me. Mm-hmm. You know, he thought a lot of me because I was the older gangster. Yeah, cousin, cool guy. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so in, 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 he got killed that year. Mm-hmm. And wow. He robbed a, um, I won't go into what he did. He just, he put himself in a bad position and a, a guy killed him. And, and the murder's never been solved, by the way. Mm. And um, How old was he? 21 years old. Oof. Okay. And uh, so I get that. And a couple days later, I get a, a letter from my, my middle child, Aaron. And, um, and he's like 10, 11 at the time. And this is where I'll get emotional. But, um <clears throat> and it starts off, dear Robert, uh. you know, stop saying you're mine and Tyler's dad. Dads are there for hockey games and birthdays and mm. holidays, and you've never been there for any of that stuff. And so, you know, I get both of those things, and then and I, I'm, I'm walking the track um, with this old school guy and a um, really nice guy. His name, was Jack, his name was Jackson. And I'm telling him about my father. Mm-hmm. being in prison my whole life. And I'm telling them how I'm realizing I'm repeating the exact same steps because now I'm hearing from my boys yeah. what I had thought and you about. you don't want to hear that. What I had thought about my dad. Exactly. You know. And, uh, and of course, and then my little cousin who just, you know, and, um, and so I'm walking the track with him. I'm telling him all this, and he says, I want you to come out here tomorrow, youngster, come out the next day to the wreck and um, he hands me a piece of paper and it's his time computation sheet. Yeah. You know that sheet? Yeah. And next to his outdate, it says deceased. Mm. And I, I kid you not, he looks me straight in the eyes and he says, if you don't change everything right now, this is what you're going to end up with. You mm. Come back with one of these. You know, you're already on that path. And not only are you going to do the same as your dad, you're going to exceed him mm. because you're not your dad. Mm-hmm. So, man, it hit me. That's deep. I believed him. Yeah. Like he looked me in the eyes and I believed him. And, um, you know, went back to the unit and, you know, there was a, uh, there was a, there was some violence on the unit that day. Whenever that happened, our, our warden, warden outlaw, his real name, by the way. That's like Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> and Brandy. You can look him and up. Outlaw. He's the, yeah. The warden outlaw. He's, he's he was a straight up guy, but, uh, anyways, he locked us down and, and, um, you know, I just, I didn't have any spiritual religion. Like that wasn't a thing in my family, mm-hmm. you know, and unless you're, you know, on your way to jail or didn't have money for rent, or, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and I just, I, I just, what should I do? I, I got to do something different. And, and I always, I always say that I, I didn't, I didn't choose to get sober because I wanted to be sober and because it made sense because mm-hmm. you guys told me it made sense. Mm-hmm. I chose to get sober because I knew it was the op- only opportunity for me to get to be a dad. Wow. Mm. That's why I got, and that's the truth. And, 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 you know, the other thing about that is Robert, there is nothing as bad as bad news in prison. You, you it's like your world shrinks and you feel like you, you know, we're trapped and you really are trapped, but it feels even that much tighter when you get bad news like that. And you contemplating all that and making that decision and taking a different path at that point had to feel, I don't know, liberating or what, what did you feel? Cause you, you now you knew what you wanted. You knew well, you wanted to be a dad and you were going to do whatever it took to make that world happen. What, did your whole mindset change about how you were going forward? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say this. I would say that, you know, my path to being a dad was very, very narrow. At mm-hmm. point. Like the kids had already said no more. Yeah. Like that took that almost, was their letter. That took almost 20 months for me to get one of them to answer my letters. Yeah. 
and um, after that because I respected, and then I did it under the guidance of a sponsor, yeah. how I how I communicated and reached out. But, you know, no, I mean, it was, I certainly had a, this is my last-ditch effort yeah. attitude. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, and even, you know, fast forward to getting out of prison. When you talk about bad news, by the way, I had one, besides my uncle, I had my grandfather was really my dad figure, my mom's dad. Yeah. I called him Daddy Ray, mm-hmm. you know, and um, he passed away on um, on Christmas Eve of 2007. So uh, when you were in prison? Roughly six months before I got out. And, um, you know, I, I used it as a drive for me to continue what I had gotten to that point, mm-hmm. which was, you know, over a year sober of not using anything behind the fence and also more importantly, trying to live that a different type of style, those principles, yeah. you know, of mm-hmm. staying out of the BS and yeah. focusing on what really mattered, which was getting to go home and try to be a dad to mm-hmm. these boys and trying to break the cycle. Like you and I were talking right. about, because, right. you know, when your dad went to prison, you became three times more likely. To yeah. Go. And when you went to prison, uh, your girls became three times more yeah. likely and the same, yeah. you know, and so to tr- try to break that. And so, you know, fast forward to me getting out, I, I don't know that I really had it in my mind that I was out and going to stay sober, per mm-hmm. se. Were you... I knew I wasn't going to use because they were testing me six times a month, <laughs> calling my calling my color. And yeah, right. <laughs> you know I, I, mean? I know like, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's that random thing. Yeah. And yeah. Today's your day. Yeah. And yeah. So, so it wasn't. But, um, you know, I just, I knew that if did I... Did you feel different, though, when you get, when we, when you're getting released this time from federal prison, did it feel different than the other times that you were walking out? Or can you... Maybe. maybe or did you even think about it that maybe way? Maybe because I had a little bit of, again, I knew I wasn't walking into the rearview mirror yeah. of what I had always walked into. Yeah. I was walking into a big old runway out in front of me. Unknown. You know, there was a huge runway. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the one in Oklahoma City. <laughs> right. <laughs> the old diesel therapy, yeah. I mean, it was it was so, so I was, you know, I just kept accepting the challenges that mm-hmm. came with it. And you and I talked about some of those challenges earlier, you know, getting out and having these, you know, kids that are now, you know, almost adults or, or, or certainly about to enter there and, and, um, and still paying child support and having... 50% of your gross and then 25% of your gross to the halfway house. Yeah. Pay the taxes on all of it. and On the gross. <laughs> on the gross. Yeah. And so, you know, but I, I saw all those things as challenges, mm-hmm. not barriers, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, like, which is a different mindset because it's so easy to, you know, I always say there's a difference between being a victim and being a survivor. A victim has the blame and points the fingers and kind of goes and sits in a corner and, and feels and blames everybody around them. Surviving gives you strength. And whatever that is, that mindset is a different feel. And what you're saying, Robert, is, is you said, okay, I know I've got things I don't know, but I'm going to step into them. And whatever that is, it might not even feel fair. But regardless, I'm going to yeah. step. It, it, per, perception, I, I, I told my mom a great one. I just heard this. It's not my original. You put two kids into a room and you put some horse crap in the middle of the room, right? You go in, you ask the older kid, well, what do you think? He says, like, there's a bunch of horse crap in here. You turn to the little kid and you say, what do you think? He says, yeah, it smells like horse crap, but I know there's a pony around here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's like, true optimism. <laughs> like that is, and, and, and so, you know, I knew that I had, I was still on federal supervision. I had, I still had three years of parole left with the state of Texas. Yeah. And then I still had a third uh, so Missouri was doing the courtesy supervision for Texas. Yeah. So I was actually issued a Missouri Department of Corrections number, and I've never done a day of time here. That's crazy. But I had three parole. Now the two state agencies said, "We're not even. You just send us your reports. Yeah. We know if you mess up, the we're feds, not interested. The feds are going to get you, and we don't even have right. to worry about you. You know. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, going to college like it was just a. Um, I had a 
I got me a little girlfriend mm -hmm. uh, eventually, and, and she was in recovery, mm -hmm. and um, she was in college to be a social worker, and she started writing papers about me, like her 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 you know reports she would do them on me right like me you were the test yeah. Pick, yeah and so i i would want to read what she was writing about sure me. and but it sparked these conversations and then she's like hey you know there's this scholarship for people in recovery to go it's called the next step and mm. and, and why don't you apply and i'm like i'm a 40 year old mm -hmm. i called myself an ex-con back then i don't do that anymore because mm -hmm. i've done so much more than that <laughs> right today um and you know, they're not going to. And I remember showing up to the interview. And I kid you not, I had a bald head at the time. So, yeah. I, you know, you see my tattoos yeah, no, you got you got a good amount of great tattoos. And I had, and I had my, you know, the old California yeah. button all the way up. And I and I, look, I looked at the panel and I said, I don't want to waste your money and my time. I'm going to take one class and see how I do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they sent me money for the whole school year. And that kind of even pissed me off, too. Like, <laughs> they I told, didn't listen to me. I, I, I told them one class, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I took the one class and I got an A. Uh huh. And it just sparked. That was it. And another challenge. Yep. Right? How far can I take this? Mm -hmm. Can I really go, you know? And so I've just been challenged by that, and, you know? And, and I don't know where we're at and, and what you want to ask, but even when we were talking about, you know, my last two years mm -hmm. and my, my relapse that I had a year and a half ago, I feel better than that. I, uh, it wasn't that I was challenging myself this time. I knew what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I needed to challenge myself to, oh, how, how can I come back? No, I can do it if I just apply these principles to my life. Mm -hmm. Consistency, you know, sobriety, you know, and if I apply those things, I know the results. Yeah. Because now I have that runways, <laughs> yeah. you know, in front of me. But I have a rear view of some pretty good track yeah. record too. Well, that that and, and I think you know, um, I was reading the story uh, on one of the stories that was online, Robert, about you, and and there were some things that happened because you were taking steps forward, being responsible, and, and not being in that institutionalized mindset. You ran across some people that were good people, you know, uh, Mike. Uh, that was, was it your first job that you got? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My, my plant manager. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you didn't get the best job there. You got a job. You would, you just happened to work. You worked yeah. <laughs> and, and took the overtime. You did all that stuff and yeah. worked your way up, but he took a chance on you. And that, I think that's such a, you know, if, I, if Mike's out there listening, that's what so many of us are looking for is that chance, that opportunity. Just let me try. I, let me show you. Uh, let me tell you, and you talk about the, the, some of the challenges that formerly incarcerated individuals. So when I when I, I I did a program in the Dismas House before I ever started looking for a job called Connections to Success. They're still around Missouri, some, but I did the programming. So when I went to interview for that job, I literally had a case manager sitting next to me during the interview, two chairs like this. Wow! Right, like this. Now a month after getting the job, a month after getting the job, my federal probation and this isn't anything about probation i mean i don't know what they're reasoning behind but i'm going to just tell my story mm -hmm. mike calls me in one day and he says what's the deal with your probation officer i go what do you mean he goes he just came up here he wanted to ask me this this and this about you but he pretty much made it like i don't know if you want to have this guy working for mm -hmm. you or not he goes and i told him I really don't care about his tattoos as mm -hmm. long as it doesn't slow him down from running my machine out there. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and so, yeah, like guys like Mike and, and ladies like Cindy that we were talking about, yeah. when I got my first apartment that she, you know, after spending $200 that I didn't have on application fees, on that application they just turn you down for them to shoot me down because of my record. Yeah. You know, um, and then on that one, you just shot straight with her, Robert. You just said, Hey, I don't, I don't have any more money on the application. Here's my thing. Here's who I am. I said, I don't want to, again, back to the, I don't want to waste your time. Yeah. And I certainly don't have any money to waste, Yeah, but here's who, here's who I am. But, but here, more importantly, here's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And she said, as long as it all matches up. And she took a shot. And you know what? She still talks to me today. And still well, you really remember those people too, that they're, that reach out and, and, and give you a hand up because that's what you're, you're desperately needing. When somebody does, they're like, wow, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. My, my, my buddy Richard that, you know, to, to be able, because I had the 50% 
bro still, yeah. even after I got out of the halfway house, for my child support. My buddy Richard that gave me a job at the apartment or uh, condominium complex as a, you know, to, to make some extra money. Now, again, it's just as important for me to say, yes, I had these opportunities given by some very special people. Mm-hmm. Um, more importantly, though, I had to accept the the Absolutely. And I, then I had to put in the work. Yeah. You to, had to be the guy. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, and I tell guys that all the time yeah. that, you know, there, there's, don't give us a bad name. <laughs> right. Like it's like, cause there's something the to do, you know, yeah. <laughs> my favorite story is this, you know, guys will wash all their clothes, their, all their whites in the toilet when we're locked up, yeah. but, but we're too good to go flip burgers. Exactly. Exactly. Let's don't forget about where we're <laughs> right. all at. Right. Yeah. Like, so, so true. So getting into because I want to walk through some of the steps that you you took on, Robert, because at a certain point you said that as you're getting your life together, feeling probably pretty good about yourself, that you're you're taking on these steps, that you're taking on more responsibility at your jobs and, and, and getting at some other jobs and you've got to find a place to live. But then you, you run across a situation where you've got all of a sudden people that are dying around you. Can you expand on that whole thing that went down? Yeah, we, you know, this is 2011, 12, right in there. And, and um, you know, I'm going to a lot of meetings. You've been out, what, about three years, maybe? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, by the way, it's very important for me to say that um, that, that kid that wrote me the letter, Aaron Riley, yeah. um, when he was 15 by then, uh, somewhere in there, and was skateboarding down the same streets, myself and my father had and was getting kicked out of high school and was had a stealing beer case he came to live with me wow in that one bedroom apartment that cindy rented me and one week he got the bedroom and the bed and i had the couch and we flip-flopped every week i love it i love it uh, and more importantly was it hard to get him to be with you or how did he, that he was I mean, out of like like well let me say, <laughs> hey i'm here in st louis no, 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 this no. one bedroom apartment no he was he was he was getting into a lot of trouble experiencing a lot of the same stuff mm-hmm. and um experimenting with drugs and, mm-hmm. and alcohol and and so i had to let him surf couches for about eight months until he and and i kept and he would call me up and try to hustle me because you know his 49th bicycle had been stolen sure. his story not mine right and uh, I'd always tell him I'm not the guy to hustle. Right. I, I always told him this. I said, I love you. Stay in touch with me. Mm-hmm. And when you're ready to do something different, you let me know, Aaron Riley, and I got you. And it took about nine months of him surfing couches, and I'll never forget him bawling, crying. And he called me up and said, Dad, I'm ready. And I had him a plane ticket. Because That's I'd so been cool, saving. though. But it's cool on both sides because he had to make a step himself <laughs> to know that he didn't want to go any further the way he was going. And he believed in you. And what you were trying to do with your life and wanted to be with you. I think that's that's incredibly great. So he flew out here. I got him into a school program. Got him. He, he graduated high school out here. And then he wanted to go back to California. And, and he went. Mm-hmm. And then he moved back. And then he moved. Yeah. <laughs> and and now he's back to help me with the coffee business yeah. to run that for me. But, um, no, so I, you know, that time, uh, our friends, I was going to meetings and, um, our friends, you know, people just started dropping left mm-hmm. and right. Like it just every, every. Well, the reason why this is interesting is that you hear about this in the news, but you were seeing it and feeling it in real time around you. Yeah. So we, we reached out to a guy uh, from Chicago Recovery Alliance up in Chicago that my friend Chad knew and um, got some Narcan from him. And we started handing it out to people and just stay safe. Mm-hmm. people that we knew that were using and and there was a lot of you know critics here and there but then there was a lot of like really vehement like what are you doing yeah are you out of your mind you know and and i always tell people like no we're just trying to keep them safe yeah you know like i breathing I, until the next day yeah, like yeah. i i don't plan on you know driving my car into a tree but i still put my seatbelt on right you know, right. like that's good analogy. Like that's the truth, and and so we were we were doing that, and and um, and the news picked it up, and they ran a, a piece on us, and that really just sent people out. But then it also brought a lot of moms out mm-hmm. that had you know wished that they had Narcan yeah. when they found their kid experiencing an accidental overdose in the basement, right? And that was, I mean, it didn't matter what the critics said mm-hmm. at that point. 
And like I tell the story, you know, we were just naive enough to think that we could do something. And I'll never forget sitting in that one-bedroom apartment, you know, tattoos from my neck to my ankles. And I'm emailing and researching leg- state legislators of, of who could possibly run a bill for us mm-hmm. to um, – at that time it was – Honestly, it was, they were doing a lot of stories in the news about body dumps going on. Mm. And uh, what a body dump is, is you and I are getting high in a hotel and you start experiencing an overdose. And so I don't want to get busted. So I grab the dope and I run. I just leave you there to die Mm. when a shot of Narcan could save your life. And Mm. so, but they were like pushing people out of cars in front of hospitals and in alleys and all these things. And, And so... The first bill that we researched and put together and submitted and got somebody ran for us was actually the 9-11 Good Samaritan bill, which was the last bill that we got passed. We got the um, removing the barriers for, like, um, first responders wouldn't carry Narcan. There's mm. a lot of them that refused to do it because of liability. Mm. And um, and so that was the first bill. And then the follow-up to that was, was allowing people, was removing the barrier to being able to get it because you have to go get a prescription, Mm -hmm. take it to the pharmacy. So we got the third-party access. So you just basically removed all the barriers. Legally, through new laws, removed the barriers. We were just trying to do smart public. It's not because we were these great forward thinkers. A, we were doing what other states had done, other other states around had done. And and more importantly, we were just trying to be like really common sense about it. Sure. Okay, so you don't want them robbing houses or whatever, you know, all these horrible stories, stealing from grandma, then um, then we need to keep them alive so we can get them into recovery, get them into treatment. Mm-hmm. Unless you just want all of them to die. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and we, and had, and we that's, had a state senator that actually said that, and it was picked up by the New York Post and ran. He said, well, who cares if they die? It just cleans up the gene pool. Wow. <laughs> that's a Some of the stuff we've been up against statement. in the state. Yeah, it's been did that, Robert, give – is that what really spurred and gave you the confidence to just to start sprinting into all these other things that you did or what – I mean, because I guess you affected real change on that and then you just jumped. And I think your next thing was – was it the recovery center or was it the housing? No, so we started handing out Narcan, Naloxone, and then a bunch of moms were like, we need to start a 501c3 so we can do, like, donations so mm-hmm. you guys can buy buy more Narcan yeah. and supply it out. And then that started the Mo Network. Um, so we started Mo Network, and from Mo Network after that was what like, did it, What did Mo Network do? So we, we advocated for all those um, passages, you know, um, it's funny, and I have to say this, that the, the people, the other agencies that would talk crap on us, mm-hmm. um, like they called us rebels. So we started an agency in Florida called Rebel Rebels. Recovery. Rebel Recovery. Rebel Recovery. I love it. <laughs> it's a great agency. I think that was, there's a picture or something online yeah. that has a, yeah. kind of a cool T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Rebel so, Recovery. <laughs> but, and, and now today they're going and getting funding for Narcan distribution, yeah. which that's what full we circle. want, right? That's what we yeah, want. Full so, circle. But, um, so we... So we, we wanted a place where somebody could come and get some resources. Like at that time, there was a five-month waiting list to get a state-funded bed. So you would call. So somebody, you know, the window for somebody to go to want to go, be willing to go to treatment yeah. is like, what? They six, could be dead by the six time. Six and they, a half minutes yeah. or until the dope man calls me back. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so it took five months. And so we started just, hey, we've got this guy can please let them in. The list was all made up anyways, because it was people that had gone back out Mm -hmm. into addiction anyway. So we started being able to get people in and making these connections around the treatment community. And and then we started doing things that kind of pissed people off. Like there weren't any detoxes. So we would go sign them in as, um, you know, because they were going to, they were harmed to themselves. Mm -hmm. And then that would give them like three or four or five days of detoxing Mm -hmm. in the hospital and the psych ward, you know, with their own rules of how it was set up that worked that way. But that was the best resource we had at the time, you know? And so we became the resource center for kind of making these connections. And uh, to, to us, the next, the next really smart thing to do was, you know, Okay, so we can get them into treatment, right? We can get them some. Well, first we can get them, keep them alive, give them, mm-hmm. give them some Narcan. Then we can get them into treatment because mm-hmm. now we have these connections. What do they do when they get out of treatment and they're still? Where are they going to live? Where are they going to live? 
So then we started the sober living. Which is huge because somebody who's gotten clean and then is back on the streets and they don't have anywhere to live, there's a real good chance that's not going to work out well. And then we started doing things like, you know, we saw the numbers of people that were getting released from incarceration. Mm -hmm. Their overdose numbers were just, they were so much more likely because they went to prison using this much or went to yeah. jail using this much. And then they get out, they try to do the same amount. And we're not even talking about And that. that's what you'd see that the Dismas house maybe once or twice, you um, know. I had one while I yeah, was there. Yeah, it, it was, was just, it, there's a guy that overdosed on you know, the showers, third floor. Yeah, so yeah. Yep, yep, yep. yeah. And so, you know, then we got to do things like we got it where we started. If somebody's identified as an opioid use disorder, now they put Narcan in their kit, in their bag when they leave. To us, those were just the smart things to do, mm -hmm. you know, like, hey, we could we could blame them and call them junkies and, you know, rejects all we want. But how but about see, we just I try to one, keep them alive? One right? of the smart things that you guys did, though, was is that, uh, the other housing uh, facilities were kicking people out uh, because they'd fallen back into bad use. And you guys, had you figured out a way not to have that happen where they don't get kicked out of your own facilities. You, you just made the other people safe so that they could all stay and, and try to survive in that housing unit. Yeah, somebody tested positive before we started ours. Somebody tested positive for whatever, weed, cocaine, whatever. They would immediately be rejected right they'd be they'd be kicked out and i just thought that was the craziest thing why would you kick somebody out when they that's like somebody showing up to the hospital and you being like we're closed yeah you know what i mean mm -hmm. like wait that's when they need you the, the most. most right when they've fallen and so i said you know i remember saying did you talk to them and find out what happened mm -hmm. you know and 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 are they willing to do something mm -hmm. different like they, there's accountability that you have to hold them to right. as well right well, let's start with just giving them a, a safe space to even say that to you. But the cool thing about that is, Robert, you were speaking from experience. I mean, that's the thing that I think, you know, you weren't wanting to throw these people out because you know what that's like. And you also knew that what they would experience if that would happen. So each time you were taking these steps, you were living in your own footworks and, and steps of what you had lived. And I think that's what's so effective about what's going on with what you're doing, because your next step was, is, is to deal with addiction head on. And, you know, you, you co-founded, um, was it Sana, uh, was it Sana Lake? Yep. Sana Lake Recovery and Center. That was such a huge step. I mean, were you thinking at the time, this is the natural thing I should be doing. This is this is the natural because you're I, as I as I write it down here on my yellow pad. It looks like it just went one, two, three, four. I, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> I know it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but it it's like every time that you got success in something, you expanded it. There was an opportunity. Yes, there was an opportunity, and and I was I wanted to seize the opportunity. The the treatment side of things really for me was at. Most treatment centers focused on one modality of treating somebody. This is a, this is, we're going to send you to AA here. Yeah. Or over here, it's Christian base. Or over here, it's just mm -hmm. abstinence, complete and total. Mm -hmm. And so nobody was really doing like, hey, wait a minute. There's a lot of people here, and we need to allow any path to recovery. Yeah. Like, let's help each person find what is going to work right. for them. Because Your what way. you do to lose weight is going to be different than what I do to lose right. weight. Or any. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when the opportunity for a treatment center, it, for me, it was more of a, all right, well, we can change treatment now. Yeah. Like we can bring like smart evidence-based, like let's follow the data and not our opinions. Yeah. Opinions get people killed. Yes. Let's, let's start treating this from the data standpoint. And the data says this gives them the best chance of survival. You know, medications, going back to the sober houses, mm -hmm. you couldn't be on Here's the craziest story for you. Okay, you ready? A judge says you have to go to treatment, and then you have to go live in a sober house. Okay, so you go to treatment, and they would put you on a medication, let's say like methadone or suboxone or something like that. So they, then you put you on the treatment, and then they you go to get into the sober house, and they wouldn't let you in if you mm. were on any of those medications. Wow. And so then they would relapse, and then you have to go back in front of the judge. All and the way it back was again. just this whole cycle. <laughs> cycle. Or how about this one? A judge would say, okay, you, you know, you're going to be on methadone for drug court for 18 months. By the way, at the end of 18 months, and we fought this one for years, 
towards the end of the 18 months, drug court, the people at drug court would say, before you graduate, you have to be off the medication. It's the only thing that was keeping them a barrier, right? Yeah. They would go off the medication, they would return to use and have to, and then fail out of the program, Cycle get back. sent to prison, have to come back out, start it all over, lose their Man. kids. Man. So we fought that one for a long time, right? So this was, treatment was like my opportunity to like, okay, well, let's follow some data now. Yeah. Let's, let's do something that actually makes sense and is supported by evidence. And so it was an opportunity. And it really grew. I mean, it blew up. <laughs> it really grew. Yeah. Uh, I forget the numbers that you told me, but uh, it wasn't that long. And you were, ha- you, you were treating a lot of people. We, were, we were helping a lot of people and doing a lot. You know, I, I, I went to all the really smart people that were passionate, that were doing it for the right motives, mm-hmm. which was to help people. And I put together. Because you were we, interested in outcomes. I mean, you said that when, before we got started. You know, the outcomes were more important than the income. Yeah. Which the income w- was good too. It was just that it's you, important. yeah, because you got to make it. It has to be sustainable. Yes, right. So, but, but, so we 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 brought together this really passionate, caring group of people at Sauna Lake that just did phenomenal work. Mm-hmm. You know, and so and and you know, put um, it was under. I was under a lot of stress, and yeah. I wanna, you know, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And, like I told you earlier, you know, put some prestige, money, <laughs> power, and prestige. All the good stuff that you wanted. Yeah, put everything, and 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 I I just wasn't prepared for it, and I did relapse, um, and um, I went, you know, I went away to treatment, came back. A lot of things in my life changed. I think it's so important, though, for someone like you. Let me just say this. With that honesty of that, because, you know, you have done so much, Robert. So, you know, you you could write a book just off my notes here of, of, of what you've accomplished and how you've overcome. But you are just, you know, a person who is trying to make it and, and trying to, you know, improve things, but you're, you're, you're living your life. And it's the honesty, the raw honesty of that is, is yeah, you, things went really good and things kind of got out of control, and, but you you caught it. Well, you, I, I mean, I, you could have you yeah. could have gone yeah, yeah, yeah. into overdrive I over have, the cliff. I had plenty of money to go do what I wanted. Yeah, I here's what I want to make. So, with all that, all those things that I was yeah. doing, I kept in whether it was intentional or not. I kept getting up this pedestal to where I was this the recovery guy, you yeah. know, and making Mr. speeches, Mr. Recovery, yeah. and 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 the truth is, is and I'm just a guy that took advantage of some opportunities that other people gave me. And I'm just a person in recovery. And I struggle today not to drink just like the next guy with whether he has 24 hours or he has 24 years. Yeah. We, you know, and so I, when, when I was leaving Betty Ford, the day I was leaving Betty Ford, you're going to love this part of the story. I was leaving Betty Ford and I was at the airport in Palm Springs. And, um, and I, I decided to tell, tell the truth because I was the CEO of this company. Yeah, you know? you're I owned silver houses. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but I, I wanted to take the wind out of anybody's sail yeah. that, that might want to, you know, the haters. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I told the truth and told exactly where I was at and what I was doing. And, and, um, and it was very, you know, it blew up. Mm-hmm. It kind of went viral in a way of what I said. And I was just trying to honestly shoot straight, my, shoot straight, hold myself accountable. Yeah. Um, tell the truth to all my friends that had placed those kind of trusts in mm-hmm. me and stuff. And then just get back to work. To me, that just even makes you more believable and more the right guy for that position in life because uh, everybody falls down. You know, that's the thing. The, the, it, the, there's a Chinese proverb, proverb that says, uh, fall down seven times, get up eight. And there's a reason why you get up, because you have reasons. You know, you have goals, you have things and plans that you want to get up for. Because if you don't, you stay down. So that's the one thing I think that is, is so inspiring about your story is, is that you've been knocked down several times, but you've gotten back up. And each time you've gotten back up, you're doing big things. And I think that's something that people can take away from this is that whatever that is in your life, 
you know, when we talk about nightmare success, success is so many different things to so many people. I call it, you know, freeing yourself, whatever that is of your mind, freeing yourself. But you, um, then you come back. Then you come back and you, you create, you have an opportunity again. You've got this coffee truck for some friends and you take this opportunity. You already had the idea of the cookie hustle, which by the way, my oldest daughter is, is a real cookie person that, Anyway, um, that's a whole different story, but, um, uh, our way, send her our way. I but, love collaborating. <laughs> she's very good at it. She just kind of gave up on it. But, um, then you saw this as an opportunity to create, uh, work opportunities for people in recovery, uh, bakers, baristas, and, and, um, wow. How cool is that? How cool is that? I mean, and how cool is it to have a coffee truck yeah, too? Cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep it real. That's the, but I mean, you just get ten percent cooler to say, "Hey, I got a coffee truck." By the way, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's we keep talking about the opportunities that other guys, yeah. other men or gals have mm-hmm. given me, and and then you said something about freedom. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I get more of my freedom by giving those opportunities to others. Yes. Fills like you it's up. Not, it's not just what I get to do. No, it fills you up. It's what I get to give, Yeah, you know, on to the next. I just had a guy tell you know, of course I get to help so many people that I have tons of stories and texts and messages and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, I just started sponsoring a guy that went to prison when he was 16. He just got out March 1st after 32 years. Mm. And, um, you know, he inspires me. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the folks from my sober house that kind of, they're going to come up there and be baristas. Like that's, I kind of miss it. Hey, I, I kind of miss it. Like yeah. I miss that, that, the give and take that, yeah. that, 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 Oh man, yeah. everything's in front of me, you know, I get it. Cause I, I get the opportunity to sit here with these podcasts and get inspired by stories. Cause I was sharing some of the guys that I was talking to you about that have been on the podcast and, um, yeah, that, that, that does fill you up. Makes you feel good. So I have a question for you before. I don't know where we're at in the. Oh, go, go, go at it, Robert. I want you to come do this for my coffee shop at some point with some of our folks. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or, or teach us how to do it or teach them. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? For sure. Like, like you have, who is it that does the coffee and cars with yeah, comedians? Like yeah, it's coffee, good. <laughs> coffee at the coffee I think, shop. I think even Jerry Seinfeld had that. Or something, yeah. Or, I think, I think Jerry Seinfeld had the yeah, you know, coffee yeah, yeah. and cars with, uh, yeah. it was on Netflix or whatever. Yeah. You, you probably should, that should be your next thing. But, but I'm saying like, yeah, we, no, you know? for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, where you're at now, you seem like this is this is you're in a good place you know your kids are good you're you're kind of gotten into this cool vibe deal that you're in now with your business after all this that you've gone through robert and you've gone through you know a journey basically of you know this is a life story journey that you've been through and you're at where you are now looking back at all of it what what do you think your biggest takeaway is from people listening to this to how you've and what you feel about yourself and the and the life that you've gotten to here. What can somebody learn from what you've taken I, from all this? You know, I think that um, we, I'll speak for myself, but I, I lacked a lot of confidence. And my mom and I were talking about this recently because, you know, she was, I was talking to a doctor and she's like, it sounds like you know more than him. I'm like, you'd be surprised. And I said, you know, I wish I had had the confidence. I wish I'd had the confidence to do some of the things because as others around me have shown, Mm -hmm. like, like I heard yours earlier and from what, you know, we could talk about, okay, it's different places and things like that, but who's, whose mountain was higher? I don't know. I guess it's who's climbing. True. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, and um, I, I just think that for the folks listening out there and particularly talking about formerly incarcerated individuals and the struggles and the challenges that we face, um, reach out to somebody that has a little bit more confidence in you and trust me, man, like you'll get your confidence. 
I love that. You just got to be willing to take a couple of steps, you know. I love that because, you know, it's, it's what you're really seeing, Robert, is humbling yourself, uh, looking for somebody that you want what they have and, and be around them and get, get it and understand it and feel it. Yeah. yeah. And just stay willing. And I, I, and I think the other thing, too, Robert, that I've seen just talking to you, reading about you, every time you took a step and you, you give your, you know, so there are a lot of, it wasn't easy to take those steps. Each time you took that step, I think that did give you more confidence because you were stepping into the unknown. You hadn't done it before. And, you know, like I think that working with the opioid thing, getting those barriers broken down, I think that gave you something where you could see the pathway that, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I can, I can accomplish some stuff. And from there, man, you just kept going. And now where you are, it's just, it's, it's a very cool story. Very uh, proud of, of what you've accomplished because uh, gosh, 2008, you could have come out and gone right back in. And that would have been the cycle that you broke with your, your story with your dad. So glad I didn't go back. And more importantly, that I got to participate with my kids. Oh, man. So I didn't have to do any time with them. Oh, that would have broke my heart. Oh, man. I can't can't imagine. And, you know, it is it is the little things in life. We, we went on a family trip uh, recently, and, and uh, you know, it's just your gratitude of being there. Just, I'm just glad I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just glad to be a part of this. And everybody's here together, and it's good. Mm-hmm. It's the little things. It doesn't have to be huge. It's just th- glad I'm here. Yep. yep. It's a good thing. Robert. Man, thank you. you. You've been a great guest on this incredible story. I love stories like this. Thank you for a picture of us. For those of you uh, uh, who are looking for a book out there, I, I wrote one, Nightmare Success. Check it out on Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. Love the likes and the reviews. Um, if you want to go to my website, leave me a message. And... Um, Really appreciate everybody staying in and giving me some referrals like uh, Robert here. Like I used to say from uh, my Leavenworth uh, TrueLinks email, stay strong and I'll do the same. Nightmare success, in and out. Thanks for being here today.